Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, podcast listeners. My name is Christopher Patterson, and I am the host of this podcast, New Books in Asian American Studies. Today, we are joined by Tui Lin Tu, who is an associate professor of social and cultural analysis and the director of American Studies at New York University. Today, we will discuss her book, The Beautiful Generation, Asian Americans and the Cultural Economy of Fashion, which was published by Duke University Press in 2011. The Beautiful Generation considers the recent rise of Asian Americans working in New York's fashion industry and explores how Asian-inspired fashions speak to American anxieties concerning the growing economic and cultural power of Asian countries. Rather than see Asian American designers as either complicit or subversive to the growing trends of Asian chic, the book investigates how these designers change American perspectives of fashion by making the relationships between between product and manufacturing more intimate. Uh, Twee, welcome to the show. Did that sound like an accurate description of your work? Yeah, that was excellent. Thank you. Oh, yay, okay. <laughs> I wonder if you could begin the interview by describing the intellectual trajectory that brought you to write The Beautiful Generation. Uh, you know, why, why fashion in Asian America? You know, I really actually came upon that topic in a quite happenstance way. I did my graduate work in New York, and, you know, it wasn't really my intention at all to study the fashion industry. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I signed up to do immigration studies um, as, uh, as part mm-hmm. of my graduate education, but it was really just kind of hanging around New York during the mid-1990s, you know, before... Um, there were these sort of major transformation in New York. Um, the biggest of which I deal with in the book is this kind of rise of the boutique culture. Mm. And um, I went to school downtown, and I would kind of just, you know, walk around downtown, and I noticed all these little boutiques um, emerging in downtown New York before it became a very sort of hip place for fashion. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I visited these shops, I noticed there were a lot of Asian women setting up these shops. Um, and so it just struck a curious curiosity with me, and I became friendly with some of them. I started hanging out with them. Um, But even then, it didn't occur to me that this could be some sort of scholarly project. And really, you know, I dealt with it a little bit in my dissertation, but it took me, you know, a good five years um, and eventually ten years of following these designers before I came up with The Beautiful Generation. Hmm. So you knew some of these uh, designers personally, or you had known them before the project had really started? one person through a friend, um, and she had set up a, a shop in what has now become Nolita. Um, mm. So I visited her shop and met other people through her, but I didn't know a lot of these people personally. I've since become more friendly with a lot of mm. them, and since the publication of the book, we've done a lot of um, projects together, but no, it was a lot of just hanging out and meeting people uh, through friends and sometimes cold calling people when I read about them in the newspapers or saw them somewhere. Did your own uh, sense of fashion kind of influence the project, or like, did you have a lot of pride in your in your style? I'm sure people now, when they see it, they're like they look at your style to kind of analyze it. <laughs> Absolutely, I think one of the most common questions they ask me when I talk about my work is, "What's your favorite place to shop?" But really, I you know, I, I, I it, it really was not my thing. You know, I'm not the girl who grew up dreaming about fashion or anything like that. And you know, when I say this whenever I talk about the book, but fashion, I'm not ever ever really interested in fashion as a sort of object, but really fashion as a kind of set of processes mm-hmm. that I explore in the book. Um, don't get me wrong, I, you know, I love reading about fashion, I think about it, I love, you know, sort of watching Fashion Week, and, you know, I do my share of shopping, but really the object was not a thing that, um, that drew me to it, it's, it's the set of social relationships that I saw through the object. And in fact, why I wrote the book is I often felt like this set of social relationships were completely masked by the object. Mm. Um, let's just go right into the book with starting with the title. Uh, even after reading through the book, uh, I still couldn't quite grasp uh, why you had titled it, it the, uh, the Beautiful Generation. Can you explain uh, who the people are that you're writing about and why you call them beautiful? 
Well, um, you know, I say, I think I say in the introduction that I call it a beautiful generation, not because I actually think like the, there was a sort of cohort or that, mm-hmm. you know, this kind of group of Asian designers emerged with some sort of purpose. Um, although I do say in the book um, that, you know, a lot of these people know each other and have worked or interned mm-hmm. with each other. Um, so it's a community in that sense. I think of it as a generation because it kind of emerges at a particular moment in fashion history, right, in design history after the 1990s when we really see New York emerging as a real fashion center, right, and all mm-hmm. of the social processes that enabled that. Um, so I, I really think of them as a kind of generation after that moment, right? Mm. Um, and, you know, and I say in the introduction, I, I think of them as a beautiful generation, not because they're beautiful, but they, um, you know, they, they work with these objects of mm. beauty that are supposed to produce something in us, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the things that it produces in us are often quite elusive. And part of, um, you know, the part of my work in the book is thinking about how certain images and icons and certain ideas and certain touches and feels and material produce certain feelings in us. Um, so that's why I titled it The Beautiful Generation. That's great. Um, let's Let's go right into the era that you were mentioning, the, the 1990s, I guess the mid-1990s, mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. which you also kind of refer to as an era of Asian chic. Uh, can mm-hmm. you explain what Asian chic is and why you suppose it became so popular in that time period? Mm-hmm. Well, I can't exactly explain what Asian chic is because I think Asian chic is one of those like ever-moving, ever-changing sort of um, titles, right, that mm-hmm. get filled by, you know, each designer, each person's imagination, right? And I think if no one ever pinned down what exactly it meant, right? But during that particular moment, what I was seeing, right, and this appeared in fashion magazines, this appeared in fashion advertisements, all certainly appeared on fashion runways, um, many books were dedicated to sort of detailing this trend, right? And it was a trend that lasted, as I say in the book, for, you know, close to a decade, right? Mm -hmm. And you can see it's sort of like re-emergence now. But it is also a trend that, to me, has a lot of historical precedence, and this is also something I cover in the book. It's like the 1990s, but also the 1960s, right? The 1850s, right? There are all these moments. And, you know, what I argue in the book is that, A, Asian chic is a floating signifier, right? Mm. That gets represented through various, um, what we might think of as kind of stereotypical imagery, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, the frog closure, the chung fan styling, right? The samar kameez, things like that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it actually meant different things in different time periods, right? But I mm-hmm. also argue in the book that Asian chic is kind of constitutive of fashion, right? And I trace through mm-hmm. the emergence of couture industry as being really reliant on particularly Chinese textiles, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, on the one hand, I think of it as a trend, right, that re-emerges over time. On the other hand, it's not a trend because it's actually constitutive mm-hmm. of how we get fashion. I'm also curious how, uh, why you think this era ends? I mean, does it just go out of out of fashion, I guess? Um, or is there something about, you know, September 11th and that kind of the context where globalization seems to get replaced by militarization in some sense, at least in the public mm-hmm. imagination? Um, you know, I, I've been watching a Project Runway for a long time, but I, mm-hmm. I noticed, you know, the, uh, the ones in the 2000s, which is most of them, or if not all of them, uh, there's always somebody, people, you know, appropriating Asian styles, um, but the mm-hmm. judges will always say things like, uh, you know, you can't make it look costumey, right? It's kind of the, the, right. the phrase they always go to. And there's a kind of sweet spot, it seems, between appropriation and, and like just doing it a little bit and then being too costumey. Um, but right. the the photos that you show in the 90s, they seem very like what we would say costumey like nowadays. Like they, it seems like people mm-hmm. are like, you know, doing yellow face almost. Uh, so mm-hmm. is, did, you, did you find a particular reason why it ended or did it just seem to go out of out of style? Well, you know, 
uh, <laughs> since you watch Project Runway, you know that the tagline is in fashion one day you're in, the next yes. day you're out. <laughs> I mean, it sort of changes constitutive of fashion, right? You know, it, it, it moves. It, it's voracious. Hmm. It sort of eats new things and digests them and then wants new, other new things. It's always about the new, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and to be in fashion is always about to be ever-changing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you'll never be in fashion if you don't keep changing. So I think it's, it's part of that kind of dynamic of fashion and in recent years I think it's even sped up even more um, so change happens even faster and faster and faster hmm. now having said that you know your earlier question about the costuming um, I, I think you're absolutely right and I think that was something that was um, that I cover in the book and in particular in the, the chapter on Asian chic you know on the one hand there was this kind of appropriation of very what we would think of as traditional right motifs hmm. Right, certain fabrics, certain iconography, certain styles. Right. On the other hand, um, when Asian designers use those same imagery, same styles, same iconography, it, it, it was read as costuming. It was read as like they were just, you know, sort of regurgitating their culture. When Euro-American designers used it, right, mm. it was always an enhancement of it. Right, mm. they made it modern. Right, <laughs> um, they made it more interesting. You know, yeah. it was as if they knew Asia better than it knew itself. Right, mm. um, and and so there was always that divide. Right, so on the one hand, you you never wanted to be costuming. You always wanted it. to look modern, right? Mm. But often if you were an Asian designer, you could never get there, right? Mm -hmm. At least in the period that I covered, right? You were always running the risk, right, of just wearing your ethnicity or your nationality on your sleeve and not being, in fact, creative at all. Hmm. Yeah, um, it it seems very difficult to study fashion because, as you were saying, it's very precarious and it's always changing. Um, But it feels like you've had a very good method throughout your book and how to do that um, because you you talk about fashion through the the logic of distance as you call it mm-hmm. uh, that fat that you you it seems to either uh, define the era or kind of define a lot of fashion um, itself. Can you tell us what the logic of distance is and how that kind of becomes a problem? Well, you know, I think uh, I, I talk about the logic of distance in many different ways, both in mm. sort of symbolic and material ways, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, one of the material ways in which we have the logic of distance is like the the, 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 the sites of consumption, you know, have become very distant from the sites of production, mm. right? We used to have a very thriving garment industry in New York, and you'd make clothes and you'd sell them right here, and the consumers would be right here, and the producers would be right here, right? Mm. There was much more intimacy between the now you know, for a lot of reasons that I detail in the book, including real estate prices, the kind of um, uh, the, the low cost of labor overseas, globalization, all those processes have really shrunk in the garment industry here. So mm-hmm. one of the material ways is that there's a real distance, you know, and the people who make certain clothing can never consume it, right? Um, and and also the distance between these people, like we don't actually even want to imagine that anyone makes our clothing mm-hmm. except the designers, which as you know, don't make clothing, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we think we're wearing a Stella McCartney, we really have that much to do with the making of it, right? Um, itself. So, you know, on those different material levels I'm talking about, but also in the kind of, um, you know, a sort of imaginative level, right? So I'm talking about a period in which we're incorporating very, these kind of um, uh, Asian styles and iconography in these very intimate ways, right? But we're doing it so that we can imagine actually a, a kind of imaginative distance between mm-hmm. us and them, right? A kind of consumption that allows us to be safely here, right, consuming difference, but, you know, but very, very, having very little actual intimate knowledge of the things we're consuming, right? Mm-hmm. Now, in some ways, this is not very different from any other times that we're consuming any other exotic products, right? But one of the things I talk about in the books is the ways in which after September 11, you know, the other is is, is felt to be not... The, the ability to distance ourselves from the other really decreases, and we mm. feel very, very vulnerable to the mm. fact that, you know, people can land our planes in our buildings, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that that actually, to me, produced a very interesting moment, you know, a desire to want to be distant and a fear that you can't be, mm. right? 
So these were all the different levels of distance and intimacies that I was trying to reveal in the book. Interesting. Uh, it feels kind of like, you know, what, the way we use iPhones now. <laughs> it's just yeah. immediately a distance from this process. Um, and sometimes right, exactly. to... Ex- yeah. Uh, well, what's on the other hand, there's uh, what you call the mode of intimacy, uh, kind of separate from this logic of distance. That, uh, mm-hmm. I, if I'm right about your book, um, at least when I was reading it the first time, I was thinking that the Asian American designers that you interview and do most of your research on, it seems like they're they're kind of attacking this mode or this distancing logic, or what they're doing is subverting it in some ways um, through mm-hmm. practicing mm-hmm. a mode of intimacy. Can you tell us about uh, intimacy and how that counteracts uh, the logic of distance for you? Sure. And again, I'm talking always in this book about you know both the material and the symbolic, right? And mm-hmm. so one of the modes of intimacy on the material that I'm talking about is a lot of these designers are children of like sewers, tailors, and garment workers, right? Mm-hmm. And so they don't really have they already have a kind of intimate relationship. And you know, I detail in the first half of the book the ways in which the the role of the family works in this, right? The actual literal family. So you know, they learn sewing from their mother, or like mm-hmm. their mother is sewing the sewers, right? I'm sorry, the zippers on their clothes, you know, mm-hmm. when they first start out, right? That they're using actual family labor to produce, um, you know, some of their collections, right? Um, this produces a kind of intimacy, um, right, that, 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 that is sort of inherent already in mm-hmm. their production. And then there's also the other modes of intimacy, which is, you know, a kind of relationship with garment workers that I saw was very different. Right, mm. uh, sort of, you know, of referring it to them as like uncles and aunties, a kind mm. of responsibility in some ways for the production process that I, I detail in the book that 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 made their relationships much much more intimate. Right. Mm. Now, when I say you know, in a mode of intimacy in sort of um, in contrast to a kind of logic of distance, I'm not trying to prioritize intimacy as somehow always better. Right. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we talk about in the book is like the, the designers, I mean, it's actually very difficult, these kinds of intimacies, mm-hmm. right? And they don't absolve designers, Asian American designers, of other kinds of ethical questions, mm-hmm. right? Around their wages, around working conditions, all of that stuff, right? So, mm-hmm. um, so again, I want to be clear that I'm not trying to prioritize this mode as like the end all be all, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it is a particular way in which I saw ethnicity working. Mm-hmm. Right in the industry, between a, a kind of immigrant generation and a second generation, through the literal family and through a kind of imaginative family. And the other way that I saw a mode of intimacy happening is that, you know, Asian designers will incorporate an imaginative level certain motifs from mm. Asian chic, right? Mm-hmm. It's expected of them, they will do it. But the ways that they also talk about what an Asian influence is in their work is actually much, to me, much less distancing, much more intimate, right? Mm. So thinking about the relationship between cloth and body, it's thinking about, you know, cut and shape, right? Mm-hmm. That, that, that draws on a kind of much more complex history of Asian clothing, right? So, you know, one of the things I talk about in the books is if you think about the history of your American fashion, there's been a kind of movement towards a sort of eroticization of the body. And that's mm-hmm. not just through, you know, people wear less clothing, right? Which I, of course, do, right? <laughs> um, if, you, if you see images of, of, you know, particularly the elite class um, in the 16th, 17th century, I mean, they had so much clothing on, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, and not so much for the elite class now, right? Um, so it's not just about wearing less clothing um, as a form of eroticization. It's also about a kind of desire to emotionally mobilize certain parts of the body for visual consumption. So if you think mm. about the way that the, you know, the, the corset really immobilizes, right, and mm. like draws your attention to that, or the bustle, right? Um, the history, to me, the kind of tradition, um, a non-Western tradition is very, very different. Right, that there is like, and, and I don't mean to say that there's no about a sensation in the body. Of course, there is, right? Mm-hmm. But if you think about the shape of the kimono, or if you think of the shape of the the sari, right? I mean, mm-hmm. or the 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 or um, the burqa, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's actually a lot. The the emphasis is really less 
is, is on mobility, hmm. right? Dressing the body in a way that, in the case of the burqa, for example, allows you to move in public space, mm-hmm. right? Um, so it's a different kind of tradition, right? And, and, and that, that knowledge of those kinds of traditions are much, much more hidden, much below the surface. Hmm. Right, that doesn't have to do with a color or, or uh, you know, an embellishment, but really a different kind of way of thinking hmm. about clothing and the body. I actually thought they had much more intimacy with. Hmm. Yeah, it, it seems very. A lot of this project just sounds so complex and difficult, partially because you're 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 doing this so well. You're thinking outside of that the idea, like that these designers could be either totally complicit, you know, or totally subversive. Like everything they're like even with intimacy and distancing, there's things that we would say are good and bad about about both. Similarly with exposure and uh, uh, like and the mobility of the broker, as you were saying. Um, mm-hmm. I was wondering, you know, just when you were interviewing uh, these designers. Uh, especially in the first chapter, you seem to dwell quite a bit upon um, how genuine their statements are, you know, if they really do care that much about the sewers or, you know, um, Mm -hmm. and then you eventually start to conclude that it almost, that you're analyzing how they articulate it and why they're articulating it so much. Um, And were you concerned about how, I guess, authentic or how genuine their concerns were? Or uh, was there other evidence that you found for this, uh, uh, this intimacy? Yeah. You know, I absolutely was concerned because I didn't, you know, I think one of the, one of the fears of the ethnographer, right, Mm -hmm. is that, that, you know, um, we're dealing with a lot of narrative production, right? That's what ethnography Mm -hmm. is at the end of the day. It's sort of, you know, talking to people and people are, and particularly these people, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not talking, um, I think everybody produces narratives when they speak, but, you know, these are people who are very, very cognizant of, you know, media, right? Mm-hmm. Public mm-hmm. attention. They talk to the, they talk to journalists all the time, right? They're, you know, these are all, all people who have college degrees, you know, I mean, these are not naive people, mm-hmm. right? So, um, so, you know, I, there was a part of me that worried whether or not I was, they were feeding me things that they thought I wanted to hear, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, of course, of course, my sort of scholarly critical eyes was uh, always, or my feelers were always up about that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I kind of concluded that by the time I wrote the book that, A, what I'm trying to figure out here is not so much the veracity of mm-hmm. their statements, right, and why they were producing the same narrative, Right? <laughs> Whether or not it was true uh, was less of a concern to me than, like, why I interviewed all these people. And they're kind of saying very similar things. So there's the same kind of narrative arc, the same kind of narrative characters, right? So why would they want to produce this kind of discourse? So that was A. And B, you know, one of the things that they, that, that, um, they say a lot Right, and that I detail in the book is how sailors are actually, you know, really, really highly skilled, and that mm-hmm. you know they know they always know much more than me, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, I for a while I thought, well, you know, you're just saying that to be nice or to feed me what I want. But I actually realized it was like, well, that's some perception that I'm bringing to the situation, mm-hmm. right? So I already assume that sailors are unskilled, mm-hmm. right, um, and that them talking about it. It was just a nice spin on somebody who was actually unskilled. But if you actually are involved in the process of producing clothing, you would understand that sewers are really crucially, crucially skilled. And actually, you know, one of the things I learned in the process of doing this is that there are very few things, there are very few jobs, there are very few um, practices of labor that we call unskilled that are fundamentally really unskilled, Mm. right? So, you know, we pay them you know, unskilled wages, right? We mm-hmm. treat them in a certain way, but, like, could you actually sew, <laughs> right? Even a simple, right? These are all skills that have to be learned, right? Um, mm-hmm. And as with all skills, some people are better at it than others, right? So, yeah, you know, I was very, very suspicious. Um, and then I realized at the end that, you know, part of part of my suspicion was about me, mm. uh, the ethnographer, rather than about them, the quote-unquote subject, Mm-hmm. Yeah. And after doing just some brief research myself, too, or 
also remembering, you know, Project Runway episodes, uh, yeah. I was drawn, I was con- pretty convinced that the dominant narrative of a lot of fashion designers is to kind of downplay the, uh, just how skilled these, uh, sewers are. Um, yeah. you know, even on Project Runway, yeah. they'll get, they'll get chastised, uh, by the judges. Um, if, but, uh, if they put down the sewers, but almost all the contestants do put down sewing as something. That's right. Just, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's very exactly. Yeah. And one of the, and one of the insults is like, you can give someone, it's like, oh, you're, he, he's technically good. Yeah. Right. So yeah. he can sew, but he's he not sew, that creative. Yeah. Right. Right. You yeah. know? <laughs> <laughs> and they do it every single season. I wonder if these people are watching the path or, if, you know, it's probably just a, anyways, we'll get to that. Uh, but um, let's go to your second chapter when you talk about uh, ethnic fictive uh, relationship or fictive kinship relationships. This is the mm-hmm. first mode of intimacy, I guess, that you were referred to before. Um, mm-hmm. But this was also a big aha moment for me, actually, when I was reading it, because I like to think of Asian American belonging, coalition building, you know, we, we're all kind of obsessed with, with those questions. Um, but you kind of very modestly, uh, reject all the kind of mini binaries throughout this book, but in this chapter, particularly that, that we need to idealize coalition building or the community and belonging are somehow separated from capitalism and from the everyday, you know, material exchange, uh, for a lot of these, it seems to me that a lot of these designers identified as Asian American only through their, um, their exchange relationships, both, you know, with the producers, with the customers. Um, yeah. You know, so can you tell us a bit about that? Well, I, I think you just put it perfectly. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, and thank you for that super neat uh, <laughs> summary of the chapter, and I'm, I'm glad that point came across, you know. Mm. I think I, I wasn't trying to be there. You know, I wasn't trying to be directly saying, like, okay, community, all this talk mm-hmm. about community that we've been doing in Asian American studies is hogwash, you mm-hmm. know. I was, you know, but there was a part of it that really was about forcing us to think about community as not an escape or a protection from Mm -hmm. the forces of capitalism and other structures of inequality, but actually being constituted by that, Mm -hmm. right? And sometimes we can think about that, you know, um, through processes of consumption, right? So certain communities are are formed around certain style, Mm. right? (laughs) Certain modes of consumption, right? People who like this particular kind of music or that particular kind of music, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But what I was trying to show here is the ways in which community is actually produced Right or ethnic mm-hmm. um, ethnic connections and coalitions are actually produced through these moments of exchange, as you say, right? Mm-hmm. And only at those sites of exchange, and really for strategic reasons, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and they really like they emerge and then they disappear, right? Mm-hmm. And the other thing I think we, we we like to think is that communities are somehow binding and long lasting, mm-hmm. and if we could only build a community, it would stay, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> then we would have it, right? And what I was trying to show is, like, it actually is very ephemeral. Mm-hmm. Like, they emerge at certain moments, and then they kind of die out, right? Um, and even the sense of community only produces certain sets of linkages and affiliations and responsibilities, right? Mm-hmm. And not all of them. So, yeah, you know, the way you put it is, I, I think, a really succinct kind of... Um, analysis of that chapter mm-hmm. and what's uh what's even more interesting f- for me too is that these relationships of exchange can be totally unequal um you know they can't mm-hmm. I, I don't think you say they're exploitative in the book but they could they could potentially be exploitative and still yeah. have that same kind of effect of bridging community and you know coalition building and all that yeah yeah, I think, you know, I think I shied away from using the word exploitative, but mm-hmm. I think what I was suggesting was it precisely, you know, sort of practices of exploitation. I mean, you know, every, every, everything that a sewer does to help a designer that I reveal, right, mm-hmm. or opposite, right, has a cost, right? And the mm-hmm. costs are, all, are, to me, disproportionately borne by the workers. Mm-hmm. Right, <laughs> and that doesn't mean that you know that that there isn't something else happening here, right? Um, and that that something else isn't significant. And one of the things that I also try to review in the book is the ways in which you know something very vague, like a notion of respect, 
mm-hmm. right, is actually really, really meaningful, mm-hmm. right? Or a kind of a, a, a different kind of moral economy, right, Where in which, you know, a seller who's technically the employee or the designer can say, oh, that's not how you do it. You do it like this, right? <laughs> or like, you know, kind of a shooter instructions and tell them like, do it this way, right? Mm-hmm. It's a, it's, it's, it's a difference, I and mean, then there's some change, and I don't think that's insignificant, mm-hmm. right? And and I wouldn't want to to underplay that. But do I think that this in any way circumvents the larger system of exploitation that I see happening in the fashion industry? No. You know, but do I see it as producing new kind of possibilities and new new sounds? I do. Hmm. Yeah, a lot of these a lot of these relationships seem like uh, they're the the younger generation uh, interacting with the older generation as well, who they probably wouldn't otherwise have interacted with as much yeah. or been nearly as exactly. intimate with uh, the aunties and uncles. Exactly. Uh, exactly. But, Let's uh, move to the third chapter. Uh, we uh, so bring it back to uh, Asian chic and how these designers are both influenced by Asia and also kind of bound within that context. Um, he, here you say that uh, the appreciation of Asian chic is is like ostensibly an appreciation of Asian tradition, but of course it kind of goes to reinforce um, Asia as an inferior within a kind of American cultural hierarchy. Uh, but mm-hmm. for me, what's really interesting about that chapter, um, which I think is what you really dig into, is how uh, the popularity of Asian chic speaks to anxieties, American anxieties, uh, in this context, and tries to resolve them and, and kind of succeeds in some instances and fails in others. Uh, can you tell us about those anxieties and uh, how Asian chic kind of helps resolve them? Yeah. Well, you know, I think it's a it's a long standing anxiety, and we still experience it now, right? Mm-hmm. In this country, yeah. it's sort of like the anxiety of competitiveness, right? Like mm-hmm. every day, you know, there's some narrative about like you know, sort of Chinese or Indian prominence, right? These mm-hmm. kind of very hysterical sort of accounts of like, oh, they built a, like a village in two days, you know, but like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and this kind of like magnificence and you know, the the sort of awe at sort of of Asian labor and the mm-hmm. ascendancy of Asian capital on the mm-hmm. one hand, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, a kind of uh, an anxiety about America's ability to compete. And I think one of the things I say in the book is, like, you know, I think Americans really thought that they were the drivers of globalization, mm-hmm. right? That they were going to be the, the, the sole beneficiaries of globalization, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, cheaper goods for them, right? But mm-hmm. higher wages for them, right? Um, and that, you know, they could consume all the world had to offer, but they didn't lose anything in the process, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and after this moment, you know, particularly after September 11th, I think it became more and more clear to Americans that that's not that's not the case, mm. right? That they were not driving this particular ship, right? Mm-hmm. Or um, that this particular animal, to use a different metaphor, had many heads, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think that really produced a moment of anxiety. And, you know, at this time, and I say in the book, you know, we're really, you know, all the uh, presidential speeches were about, like, how American can stay competitive in mm-hmm. this new global market. And we still hear the exact same phrases now, mm-hmm. right? Like, mm-hmm. what do we need to teach our children to stay competitive? The Chinese, you know, Chinese children are learning calculus at age mm-hmm. four, right? What are we doing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, it, it, it really was not a moment where we were feeling very secure about our position in the globalized world. And I think mm. one of the things that um, I say in the book is, like, Asian Sheep helped us by, A, presenting, you know, uh, two, vi- vi- two very different visions of Asia. One that was, like, sort of traditional and sort of folk, right? Mm-hmm. And, and somehow an escape from the demands of modernity, right? Mm-hmm. And the other version was the sort of high-tech, high-gloss Japanese mm-hmm. right, version that was, you know, sort of... Um, you know, at modernity's razor's edge, right? Mm-hmm. So there's, you know, you can escape modernity and these kinds of competitive demands, right, on mm-hmm. the one hand, or you can be dominant on the other hand, right? So we presented two different visions of how you can live in this global world to sort of um, 
uh, ease this kind of anxiety of competitiveness, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so I conclude in that chapter that on the one hand, while it was always a sort of distance to move to kind of to suggest kind of American superiority, Mm -hmm. it wasn't always effective, right? And what it revealed instead is not an American confidence or superiority, but American sort of anxiety. Mm. Um, Yeah. Uh, you you go more into that in your fourth chapter with uh, Vivian Tam and her mm-hmm. uh, Mal collection. Uh, I mm-hmm. looked at a lot of this online just to see it, and it, it's pretty funky. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. I, I did end up liking a lot of it, but uh, some of it was very pop artish, like uh, different yeah. images of Mao kind of strung up, and each one a little bit different than the other, on, except that it was on a dress <laughs> or a yeah. t-shirt. Yeah. Uh, what was the kind of point that you were making with uh, Vivian Tam's collection? How does that kind of help us understand the anxiety and the uh, effects of Asian chic and how uh, Asian American designers can in some ways subvert the that logic? Yeah. Well, you know, I think one of the things that um, looking at it from this from this vantage point now is that, you know, one of the things that we don't recognize is when she produced that collection, it actually produced a lot of controversy, right? Mm-hmm. And I spent a lot of time in the chapter talking about the image of Mao and the sort of political significance of that image of Mao. Right. So, you know, now and even for certain consumers, right, it's just for this kind of funny, glossy pop art thing. Right. Mm-hmm. What I try to do in that chapter is think about, OK, what is also happening at this time in Asia and in 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 the United States? Right. One mm-hmm. of the things that's happening is this kind of emergence of, of Maori or like the Mao heats. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, this really, you know, the, the, the popularization of the image of Mao. Right. Mm-hmm. Also, the Emergence of the of Chinese avant-garde artists in the global uh, New York art market, hmm. right? Um, and these two kind of uh, uh, strains are happening at the same time that she's producing all of this stuff, right? Hmm. And one of the things I wanted us to understand is like this is how you start to look underneath the surface. Right. Mm-hmm. This is how you start to think about Asian shape is not just about images, right, but sets of social relationships, right? Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I talk about in the chapter is the ways in which artists are trying to construct the image of Mao as a kind of political act, mm-hmm. right? And that, and that you can think of Vivian Tam, and she actually collaborated with the artist Meng Hong Tu on this project, right? Mm-hmm. So he actually created the image, and she tweaked it a little bit, and she put, put it onto the, the different patterns and the different pieces of clothing. So there's a kind of collaboration between the two of them, right? And he very much was thinking about the deconstruction of, of the image now as a political and a psychological act for himself, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what American consumers don't understand is, like, you know, for them, now is like Elizabeth Taylor, is anybody, you know, is any other kind of major global icon, right? But for for certain Chinese of certain generations, like that image had a lot of political and psychological significance. Mm-hmm. Right, and so the chapter to me was starting to was, was the beginning of thinking about how we might look below the surface mm-hmm. um, of something that's so spectacularly about this, right? To mm-hmm. learn um, to learn about these other sets of practices and relationships. Mm-hmm. I mean, one thing that struck me about those images, um, having been to China three or four times, you know, is that the uh, you, you see that 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 particular image of Mao absolutely everywhere. You know, it, yeah, it's always that image too. It's kind of strange. Like it's on every dollar bill, every UN, and yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. Uh, and so to see it in that on a dress for some reason was just so like weird. <laughs> it was just so unsettling. Yeah. And to see it in all those different colors and with pigtails, uh, yeah. So the effect yeah. might have been very different depending on who was viewing it. Um, but I could, yeah. I definitely felt the kind of subversiveness of it, like how it immediately made me question uh, the kind of validity of that image, uh, ubiquity of it. Um, um, one of the things she talks about is, you know, when they first produced it, like, mm-hmm. they were spun in these, like, wrapped paper bags, and, you know, there was, a, like, <laughs> you know, people really didn't want to touch that, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> uh, which seems like such a different historical moment now, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the kind of things that you can put on a t-shirt, too, are just kind of amazing. You can, there's websites yeah. that will, like, let you print, you know, back to the iPhone, like images of women working on manufacturing the iPhone. <laughs> you can walk right, around with a exactly. t-shirt that has that. And, yeah, it's, <laughs> exactly. very, it's very unsettling for people. 
Um, yeah. Let's get to the the, the fifth chapter, um, and this mm-hmm. seemed like one of the like probably the most complex for me, at least as a reader, mm-hmm. uh, because you you go right to the heart of that question that I mentioned before, which is how these designers identify, um, how they're kind of led to identify with their homelands, especially uh, you know especially in the era of globalization. Um, mm-hmm. And this also, but they also carry an emotional connection to their to Asian American identity uh, and to the mm-hmm. the other ethnic artists, um, mm-hmm. and you know, and the whole idea that China and Japan are this kind of burgeoning market that will also begin. You know, now we we know them as shoppers. <laughs> Singapore yeah. is, is like the shopping yeah. central, and so yeah. not not just being influenced by them, but also selling back to them uh, styles right. that are influenced from Japan. Uh, so right. can you tell us a bit about how they identified and uh, how they also identified what they were influenced by? Right. Well, you know, one of the th- things that I found interesting in my research is that, you know, the ways in which they perform a kind of relationship to Asia, right? Even though some of these are second, third, fourth generation, you know, and never been there and actually are taken up uh, in Asia as like, you know, representative, right, mm-hmm. of a of Chinese, Japanese, right? Mm-hmm. And one of the, you know, one of the things I, I um Sounds interesting is like, you know, they kind of have a global presence in these these homelands, quote unquote, mm. that really is outmatched by their sort of uh, prominence in the fashion industry. So usually you have to become a pretty big brand, right, before you have a market in, say, China, right? You have to be mm. a Prada or Gucci or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And then you would go to China, you know, whatever, Japan, you'd see these small designers who are Japanese or Japanese American, they have a store. In mm-hmm. Tokyo, right? Mm-hmm. You know, even when they don't have a store here, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's it struck me that there's something else happening here, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that there's another dynamic at work here, and that their sort of ethnic national identity has some sort of material value in the global market, right? Mm-hmm. And at the time that I was writing this book, the kind of this like you know Asia as as a as a market was really really exploding. Mm-hmm. But in reality, Asia as a retail market was much more a hope than a reality at that point. You know, there were a lot of shops and a lot of shoppers, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> or they're shoppers and they're really just enjoying the air conditioning, you know? <laughs> um, and they're not really buying that much. And, you know, um, my new work is, I'm doing some new work in Vietnam and it was very mm-hmm. much the same when I was there last summer. It's like big malls, beautiful stores with similar brands, um, but a lot of, A, either empty or B, a lot of people, like families visiting, you know, spending an afternoon in the mall, right, mm-hmm. enjoying the air conditioning uh, rather than buying. Um, and, you know, I think that the, that what I was trying to show here is that, you know, these designers thought of themselves and were thought of in some ways as this kind of bridge to um, to an Asian market. And now actually like people, when people like Alexander Wang, Peter Salmon, all those people have um, a global presence, right? Mm-hmm. Um, um, much more so than they did when I was writing, when I was writing the book at the time, it was just sort of emerging. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I also wanted to, to show in that chapter that it wasn't just about a kind of cynical or strategic or a kind of cashing in only, right? But it also ha- had something else going on, right? And it, it, um, you know, this relationship to Asia on an aesthetic level had uh, had a lot to do with the, the 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 kind of design choices I already talked about, and and the thinking of the ways of um, and the ways that they thought about the relationship between clothing and the body that I already talked about. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, so I just wanted to make clear that I think that this had a very kind of strategic and material value, but it was not just that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the like you mentioned Alexander Wayne. Well, uh, and one of, the, one of the interesting things about that artist too is uh, uh, they get mentioned a lot on like hip hop songs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like Kanye West mm-hmm. will mention Alexander Wayne all the time, and, and there's so yeah. there's there's this kind of weird, uh, very interesting like hip hop influence, go, you know, try, kind of mm-hmm. driving this. Um, mm-hmm. w- would you say that? Uh, since you I mean your context is mostly you know the late uh, middle late nineties, but do you see mm-hmm. uh, fashion changing in in respect to how uh, like Asian companies like for example we have Uniqlo now, 
you know, that uh, right. Time Magazine had a big article about them being like the next big thing in fashion, I guess, uh, right. the, the way they manufacture products and all that. Um, but yeah. there are Uniqlo's you know, clothes now in, in America and it's becoming this kind of big worldwide brand. Uh, do you see yeah. that as, as influencing change or have things changed uh, in some ways that you've seen? You know, I, I think I think um, fashion continues to change, right? And I think, you know, at the end of the day, and this is something all the designers I talk to say, you know, fa- the fashion industry is a business, right? <laughs> is an industry, and it really tries to capture, right, the the biggest market it can. That is always the goal, right? More mm-hmm. cons- more eyeballs, more consumers, right? Um, and I think that. Right, um, is true of all designers, all companies, mm. right? Um, and the presence of Uniqlo is like one of uh, uh, is is one part of of what I mentioned earlier about the ways in which globalization is not being controlled only by the United States, right? Mm-hmm. You know, instead of just having Disney everywhere, we're also having Uniqlo <laughs> everywhere, right? <laughs> you know, um, so yeah, I do think the fashion industry is changing, um, but it's changing in response to you know, the realities of a globalized market, right? Um, one of the most interesting things that I see, I see developing is, A, so, um, you know, Chinese companies will now set up in Italy, for example, mm. and create clothing that they can say is, you know, made in Italy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the new processes of globalization that I see happening in the fashion industry. It's like, it doesn't matter where where the label comes from, right? You have to look to see, you know, what is actually happening at that site, right? Mm -hmm. And also, because um, Asia is becoming its own such large global market, it's, A, sending a lot of designers out to the West, but also it's keeping its own consumer markets, right? Mm -hmm. So um, my friend... Mary Ping is a designer, but, you know, there are people in China who are, like, just huge in China, right? But that mm-hmm. is so huge. Yeah. Right? They don't actually feel like they need to sell in New York. I mean, mm-hmm. they have enough, and they're, like, the smaller designers. They're not that pressed, mm-hmm. right, <laughs> to try to get the New York, you know, uh, Italian, French markets, right? And mm-hmm. those used to be the sort of, like, the, the blue chip gold standards, right? They don't feel pressed because they have their own consumer base. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so those are some of the changes that I see happening. Mm-hmm. That is a hard thing for some uh, people to understand about China too. That, uh, like, I was reading that the most popular beer in the world is a, ch- a Chinese beer called Snow, right, which I've tr- tried several <laughs> times and it doesn't really taste all that great. But uh, you know, no- nobody in the U.S. really drinks it, and very few people from the Europe know what it is. But you know, the, the company doesn't feel pressure to sell anywhere else except China because yeah. that's all the people that they need right there. <laughs> you know, all right, the exactly. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, I wanted to ask, uh, uh, in your coda, you kind of end uh, talking about intimacy. Uh, and mm-hmm. I'm just, you, you did mention in the interview earlier uh, that there are some downsides to intimacy. Uh, and there are also, of course, plus sides to it. And I'm just wondering if you could mm-hmm. elaborate a bit. Uh, on that, like in retrospect, how do you see intimacy? Um, mm-hmm. You know, what are its effects in Asian American studies or in other areas? Mm-hmm. Uh, what are its downsides and its upsides? Mm-hmm. Well, I think you know one of the things I try to show throughout the book, in terms of upside, is that you know I think one of the the lessons I learned from doing this project is that you know social. Um, social conflict, right, or lack of community or lack of collaboration is less about difference now. And we used mm. to think about, like, it, it was all about the encounter of a difference, and we can't mm. handle difference, right? Well, we can, right? We consume difference mm-hmm. all the time, right? We love difference, right? <laughs> but that hasn't resolved for us the problem that, you know, we have a lot of social fracture, right? Mm-hmm. And now, so to me, the problem is less about difference, although difference is absolutely... Um, still crucial, right? So, you know, there's a way in which we can consume certain difference, but we don't want to marry certain difference or mm-hmm. give political rights to certain differences, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not saying those have been eliminated, but it's just sort of the social distance, imagining that we don't have anything in common. Mm-hmm. We cannot possibly affiliate or connect with people, right, mm-hmm. across these differences, Right? And so, to me, intimacy is one of the first ways that we can actually imagine coalition building across difference. Right, mm. and I think that 
has to be key, right? Uh, because, you know, I, I, I think social distance is, is really the mechanism, right, in which mm-hmm. we can, you know, live next door, right, to certain, like in New York City, you can literally live next door to someone who's, like, on welfare, right? And, mm-hmm. you know, you have this kind of intimacy, but you can still imagine you don't have anything to do with them, right? Um, so I think one of the upsides is, 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 is is it allowing us to imagine that we can affiliate, right? Mm. And um, the downside, of course, is, you know, and this is how I sort of end the book, is that, you know, there's a a price for every kind of affiliation, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Nothing comes for free. And, you know, I end with with a little bit from an article I had written during the time I finished the book, right? And this was during the the, the Lehman crash, right? Mm -hmm. And so it was about how, like... um, you know, poor people actually give more money to charity than mm-hmm. rich people, right? And it's about how, like, poor people share their resources so much more than, mm-hmm. you know, wealthy people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and in the absence of any other kind of social welfare, right, that, that they're having to, you know, when people can no longer get food stamp, for example, you know, as in the, the recent debate about you know, stopping, right, some mm-hmm. of these social welfare um, services, right, you know, there's a lot of sharing among poor people, and that actually just puts more strain, you mm-hmm. know, on the on poor people's collectivity, right? So there's mm-hmm. like, you know, it's it, it, it becomes more and more and more of a strain for them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's, a, there's a price for everything, right? <laughs> and... Um, and, 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 you know, and, and every affiliation also demands, every imagination of collectivity also demands a kind of erasure of something else, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, again, you know, my, my, my goal in this book wasn't to say that it, a mode of intimacy was, um, you know, the way forward only, but it was a way forward in, in the sense that it can actually ima- allow us to imagine something different, mm. something to come. That is such a big payoff <laughs> for an end of a book. That's amazing. Um, okay, well, on that note, uh, we've taken up a lot of your time. Uh, you've mentioned that you were working on something with uh, Vietnam and fashion now, or uh, what, what else are you working on now, or do you want to talk about that? Oh, just very briefly. I'm actually doing some new work on the cosmetics industry. Oh. And, uh, yeah, and, you know, I've done some um, some research in Vietnam, which is one of the fastest-growing cosmetic markets. And the next project is going to take a look at the relationship between uh, New York City and Ho Chi Minh City <laughs> and thinking about right, the cosmetics industry as a kind of um, – a mode of aesthetic education, right? That's hmm. that's compatible with certain mo- notions of modernity, particularly around development. Um, and so, I'm thinking about the relationship between a kind of uh, particular discourse of managing women's bodies in Ho Chi Minh City, and hmm. linking it to the rise of certain kind of land development in Ho Chi Minh City. Um, so that's what I'm working on right now. Oh, fascinating. Um, okay, well, thank you so much for being on the show today. I feel like I learned a lot. Uh, yeah, again, the, the, the arguments in the book can seem so modest, but they're, seem, they're so powerful. They become so powerful in retrospect. So thank you so much for writing it and being on the show. Thank you very much. Take care. Thank you for listening to my interview with Tui Lin Tu on her book, The Beautiful Generation. If you have any questions, grievances, or suggestions for books for this podcast, you can message me on the New Books in Asian American Studies Facebook page. See you next time.